Good morning. I want to say that I am very impressed by all of you who have joined us this morning. Uh, for those of you that are watching us online, you have heard people uh, speak a little bit about the weather here. Uh, it's 12 degrees outside thereabouts and actively snowing and it was super slippery on the way in. And it would have been a really good day to stay home with a cup of hot chocolate in front of your your fireplace and watch the service on live stream. And for those of you that are doing that, I, I would have liked to have done that myself. Uh, but for those of you that braved the weather, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and we can all be envious of our brothers and sisters that are in San Diego for the One Project, uh, because I'm pretty sure it's not snowing there this morning. Uh, for the last several weeks, we've been studying the book of Acts and hearing about the formation of the early church. We started the book with the amazing account of Jesus' ascension into heaven uh, and of Matthias being chosen as the, 12th, the new 12th disciple. Uh, we've heard about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, um, and we've heard that the disciples have been beaten and threatened and imprisoned, and despite that, uh, they've been wildly successful in their outreach. In fact, if we've been paying attention to the numbers, the early church has gone from 120 people meeting in a small upper room at Pentecost to somewhere around 5,000 members in chapter four. That's incredibly fast growth. Have you ever seen a church grow that fast? But to be perfectly honest, I had never paid much attention to this story before, uh, and if truth be told, it likely would have stayed that way for me had I not been asked to talk about this story. It's, uh, it doesn't look very interesting right off the bat. Let's be honest, who really wants to study about the grumblings of a bunch of widows? Uh, it's not nearly as exciting as the story of, of speaking in tongues or about the apostles getting broken out of jail in the middle of the night by angels. So I wondered, in the middle of all of these really exciting stories that Luke is telling us at the beginning of Acts, why would he choose to throw in a seemingly random story about a, a bunch of grumbling widows? Why would he choose to air the dirty laundry of the early church, so to speak? There's a reason I thought of eventually, after I was studying this for a while. Have you ever heard anyone say, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, or it'll be ruined? Sounds awful, doesn't it? But what the saying means is that churches are not buildings. They are people, and as soon as you get to know the people in a church, you realize that they're not perfect. And I think that Luke wanted us to get to know the people in the early church, imperfections and all. Once I started really reading this story, I realized that there is a lot of good stuff packed into this small space. So I've decided to break the story down for us line by line, and if you'd like to follow line by line, it's on page uh, 1012 of your pew Bibles. We'll start at the very beginning. Actually, we're going to start uh, before the very beginning of this story. Let's start with who this church was and who their leaders were. If you think about it, this should have been the perfect church. This group of believers was established by Jesus. It was built on by the disciples. The men who had just spent the last three years learning from Jesus, following him around, being there one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, were the pastors of this church. Some of the members had sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his stories. They had witnessed his miracles firsthand. 
unlike us who have to read about them thousands of years later. And yet almost immediately, despite the fact that it should have been perfect, we're given a story that lets us know that things are not going as smoothly as one might have hoped in the early church. They're only a few months into this thing and they're already having problems. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. When I first read this, I thought, wait a second, didn't we just learn back in Acts 4.34 a couple of weeks ago that there was not a needy person among them? Pastor Japheth had spoken to us about how the believers who had houses or land brought, decided to sell them and bring the proceeds together and, give, and lay them at the feet of the apostles. So I was under the impression that the early church was doing a pretty good job of taking care of its members. If the wealthier members were taking their properties and selling their assets in order to share everything that they had with the more needy members, and there was a, place, uh, a system in place for taking care of people who had need, then why was there a need for complaining? And who are these people that Luke is even talking about? So we have two groups here. Luke refers the, to them as the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now the Hebrews we are familiar with. They're Jews that are born and raised in Israel. Their families can trace their lineage back generations. They may have lived in the same house as their parents or grandparents did. They grew up here, they went to school here, they know everyone in the neighborhood, they belong here, this is their home. There's no question about that. But it's a little bit different for the Hellenist. They are Jewish as well and they consider Israel home but they may not be necessarily from Israel, though their parents or grandparents might have been. Their ancestors may have been taken away from Israel as captives by invaders like the Babylonians, or they may have left because of poverty or war or for any number of reasons that one might choose to move. Or maybe they are from somewhere else, but they have converted to Judaism and they've moved to Israel. Remember when we studied Pentecost back in chapter two, Luke gave us a long list of people from other places who were in Jerusalem for the feast. He mentions Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. And there's quite a long list that he gives us there. Needless to say, the Jewish faith had converts that represent a fairly wide swath of the known world at the time. And one of the awesome things about their experience at Pentecost is that all of these people from all of these places who spoke all different languages were hearing the apostles speak in their own native tongue. And it's not a stretch to think that some of these Jews from around the world accepted the message of the apostles after witnessing this miracle. And remember that this group of believers does not yet consider themselves Christian. They haven't adopted that name yet. They are simply Jews who follow Jesus Christ. Now the word Hellene means Greek. So the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who were now living in Palestine. And these Greek-speaking Jews could have been from any number of places around, around the, the world because despite the fact that Rome was the ruling country at the time, Greek was the language of commerce, and it was very widely spoken, much like English is the, is the language of business today. This kind of 
immigration or migration back to Israel is not unprecedented, and we see it even now. Uh, some of you will remember back in 2015, there were some terrorist attacks in Paris, one against the Charlie Hebdo newspaper, uh, one against a kosher supermarket, um, and several other uh, incidents of anti-Semitic type activity back in 2015. Shortly thereafter, the Israeli Prime Minister, ben Benjamin Netanyahu, made a statement. He declared that Israel is the home of every Jew and invited European Jews to move home to Israel. Interestingly enough, there is, there's a fairly significant number of people that have taken him up on his offer. So if you think about moving back to Israel in modern terms, imagine that you are a Jew living in Paris when these attacks are taking place, and you've witnessed a change um, in your community, uh, and, and you start to think that maybe it would be better for you and your family if you moved back to a place where your faith was more well accepted. And so you decided to pick up your family and move them to Israel where you could be surrounded by people who shared your faith. You are a faithful Jew, uh, but you're also French. You speak Hebrew, but you do it with a French accent. You dress in stylish French fashion. You bring with you your favorite wonderful French foods. You still follow your favorite French soccer teams. No matter how strictly you observe the Jewish faith and no matter how at home you now feel in your new home in Israel, you're still French. You will be different. You'd be different if you moved from anywhere, including the United States. Moving doesn't change who you are. This is the situation of the Hellenists. For the, some of them, it's been their dream to move home to Israel, a place that has significance to them, not only because it's their ancestral homeland, but it's because where they, it, it is where they believe that the Messiah will appear. But like it would be for Jews moving back to Israel even now, it won't, it's, it's not easy. You have to pull up roots, find a new home, a new job, a new school for the kids, in a place that, though, is fam feels familiar because of your faith, is still as different as you might expect it would be if you moved to a new country. The Hellenists are Jews living in Israel, but they still maintain their own ethnic identities. They may know how to speak Aramaic like the Hebrews do, but they speak it with an accent, and they've brought their cultures with them. I also imagine that it's possible that they might not live in the same neighborhoods as the Hebrews, after all, the Hebrews have been there for generations, and we tend to seek out people who make us comfortable. So immigrants often will congregate together. And also, if you think about it, moving to a big city, sometimes you have a bit of a real estate problem, where it has become so expensive in the city that maybe the immigrants or the Hellenists could not afford to live in the city. We're running into a bit of that here in Boulder, where it's a little bit expensive to live here, so the new people don't necessarily live close by. So the groups may have been separa separated by a bit of geography as well. Now having a system to take, to take care of the less fortunate was not revolutionary or even that unusual. If you will look and recall way back in the New Testament, New Testament back in Leviticus 25, uh, there are provisions in Torah law for taking care of the poor. Landowners were supposed to leave portions of their fields unharvested for gleaning. Remember the story of Ruth. And there was a system whereby families were supposed to support their kinsmen who had fallen on hard times. 
So the early church, who were faithful Jews, were accustomed to taking care of the needy, and they adapted this tradition to their new group of believers. In fact, you might even say they took it up a notch, because they, what they intended appears rather more generous than just allowing gleaning in the fields. They were attempting to be rather deliberate in caring for the needy, and we're certainly aware from some familiar stories that some of the most needy in this culture were the widows. If you'll recall, women at this time did not have property rights. Uh, they didn't have professions with which to support themselves. And they were more or less completely dependent on their husbands or their sons for their support. If they lost their husband and they had no son, or their son was a child and they had no other family, they were left basically destitute and dependent on others, in this case the church, for their support. It appears that the new system of caring for these widows took the form of a daily distribution of food and other necessities. In my imagination, the daily distribution might look a little bit like the boxes that we used to put together for needy families at my church when we were growing up. How many of you used to go door to door in the fall collecting cans for the boxes at Thanksgiving? Hey, I see a lot of hands. Uh, our kids at Vista Ridge did that this year, and they brought all of, the all, all of the cans back to the school. We would always bring the cans back to the church, and the ladies of the church would divide out the cans, put in some fresh fruits and vegetables, and then the kids would decorate the boxes before they would go to the families. So in my mind, I'm seeing colorful cardboard boxes here. But maybe it was more like a fellowship lunch that they had every day. After all, the apostles did mention serving tables. Or maybe they set it up like a food bank where folks could pick up whatever they needed for the day. We're not sure exactly what it looked like. And we're not ex exactly told why the Hellenistic widows were being left, um, left out, but I can think of a couple of reasons why that might have happened. The first one that I'm thinking of is distance. Uh, when we collected the cans as kids, we brought them back to the church so that they could all be packed up nicely. Um, and if it was a served meal that they sat down to every day, they would need some place uh, to do that. They would need a central point. So logistically, it just makes sense that the distribution would take place in the center of the city. But if there wasn't a system in place for home delivery, and if you were an older widow or a young mother walking into central Jerusalem or hopping on whatever public transportation might have been available might have been a difficult thing, if not impossible, especially if you were older or in poor health. What if, since you couldn't afford to live in central Jerusalem, or if you were sick, you didn't get out much, so you didn't know too many of the other believers personally? And you certainly didn't know many of the Hebrews, so when you didn't show up to pick up your box or you didn't show up to sit down for your meal, nobody noticed. What if there was nobody to say, hey, have you seen Mrs. Jones? I didn't see her come today. How would you feel if you saw that because the Hebrew ladies lived closer and they knew more people, they were well cared for while you were getting left out? And it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that if the physical needs of the widows were not being met, that potentially their spiritual needs were going neglected as well. We're not told if it was the widows themselves who complained. I kind of doubt it. People who find themselves at the margins 
often don't have much of a voice. But some of the other Hellenist members noticed that the widows were being overlooked. And I do think that they were being overlooked. I find it hard to believe that a group of people who had been very intentional about selling their assets and pooling their resources and setting up a system for taking care of the needy would have purposefully overlooked a group of people. I could be wrong, but I'm going to give the Hebrews here the benefit of the doubt. We just said that the church membership had jumped from 120 to 5,000 plus men. Now we know that they never count the women and children, so in reality, it's probably a lot more than that if you count everybody that was involved. It would be really, really tough to scale up your operation for that kind of growth. The needs could pretty quickly overwhelm your system, and it might be easy for people to fall through the cracks. But that doesn't excuse the fact that people were being neglected, that the widows were being overlooked, so there was obviously a problem. Excuse me. We're not told if the Hellenists took their complaints directly to the apostles, or if the apostles started hearing rumors of discontent through the grapevine. I'm tending more towards the grapevine here because the word for complaint in the original Greek translates to murmuring. So it's more likely that the apostles started hearing rumors, which is rather unfortunate. So right off the bat, the apostles have some choices. I'm going to switch mics here because it's popping is going to drive us all crazy. All right, so right off the bat, the apostles have some choices to make. They could have ignored the murmurs or dismissed the Hellenists as being petty, or they could have scolded the Hebrews for ignoring people, but none of these approaches would have given anyone a warm, fuzzy feeling. So fortunately, they didn't do either of those things. Instead, we're told that the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, my first reaction to this part of the story is not a good one. In fact, it's rather similar to what my reaction would be if my husband Brian came to me and suddenly said, hey, you know, I'm really busy at work, I'm working really hard, and doing the dishes doesn't really fit into that whole, uh, I'm the head of the household leadership role, so I'm just going to stop loading the dishwasher. I would have some choice things to say to him, and my knee-jerk reaction to the apostles here is to get really irritated. Did the disciples think that they were too good to serve the tables? Were they not wanting to get in there and get their hands dirty? What kind of leadership does this group have anyway? But fortunately, that's not what they meant. There's two things that occurred to me once I thought about it a little bit more. Uh, maybe back just prior to Pentecost when the group was small, the apostles were the ones that were packing the boxes for the needy. Uh, but pretty rapidly, their numbers grew so much that the task became a, a much bigger one. They wouldn't have had much time for outreach if they were the ones that were doing the grocery shopping and handing out the widow's share. So I can give them a pass just based on the time factor here. Uh, but the second reason that they needed to give this task away is that it turns out that we all have our talents and that they realized that there were many believers that had talents that were not being used. 
Paul puts it this way a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Uh, Pastor Japheth has a tremendous talent for planning and coordinating large gatherings like the one this weekend in San Diego. But if he was in charge of preparing all of the crafts for the kids' Bible study classes and for making all of the casseroles for the potluck dinner today, he'd have no time for the one project. Juanice is making sure that everyone is well-fed at lunchtime today. Pastor Jessica spends hours putting together great activities for the kids' Bible study classes. We have a great group of leaders here who are teaching the Bible study classes both for the adults and the kids. But I think all of us who teach those classes are glad that we're not the ones up here doing the singing. Mark and the worship team have led us with their talents in this area this morning. We all have a talent and a place to serve. The apostles were not saying that they did not want to care for the widows. They were saying that their time was better spent where their talents were best used. The apostles realized that, that preaching was their gift, and they were doing so with spectacular results. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. When Luke uses the term disciples here, he's referring to the members of the entire church, and he says that they summoned the full number, everyone. The problem was not left to the apostles to solve on their own. They did not make any executive decisions in this case. Instead, they invited and included everyone, those that were being overlooked, the widows, those that were irritated and grumbling, the Hellenists, those that had probably been helping with the distribution, the Hebrews, those that figured that it wasn't any of their business, those who were busy with their own lives and didn't want to be bothered, and those who were oblivious to the fact that there was even a problem. They invited everyone. The church is made up of people, and they included as many of the people as they possibly could. Now, I'm not saying that everyone actually showed up. We know how hard it is to get an entire congregation to show up at the same time, but they gave everyone the opportunity. Here, the whole process could have gone off the rails. What would have happened if they had come to the entire congregation and said, here's the problem, fix it amongst yourselves? I'm betting that it would have been like it is for any group. It would have been a little bit like herding cats. Everyone's going to have their own ideas and their own priorities, and unless you have a process for tackling the problem, it's all going to devolve into chaos and nothing is going to get done. That's where good leadership comes in, and we've already established that this church had pretty good leadership. After all, Jesus had chosen the pastors himself. This good leadership not only set aside their own designs about how the problem should be fixed, they had faith that the Holy Spirit would guide whoever they delegated this task to. And they understood that there is more than one way to tackle a problem. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles said, hey, we're really busy with the preaching, and it is going really well. 
Uh, but we need to be able to concentrate on what we're good at, and we need some of you to take over caring for the people, something we haven't been doing all that well. The widows are not getting what they need, and there's probably others who aren't either. So those of you who are here, have a say in this. Pick out seven men who will be good at this. I was thinking that, that this is also a bit of a, ri a risky approach in some ways. We already have two factions here, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, and they're already at odds with each other. They're different. They think differently. They do things differently, despite the fact that they share this faith, and there's obviously some tension between them already. And the whole thing could have gone completely wrong. The Hellenists have already made their grumblings known, and I'd be surprised if the widows getting overlooked was their only gripe. This strikes me more as a straw that broke the camel's back kind of situation. Sometimes it's the small things that cause the bigger things to simmer to the surface. What if the Hebrews had said, hey, we're doing this just the way we've always done it, and it's always worked before? What if they had said, hey, you guys are blowing this all out of proportion. This is not that big of a deal. What if both groups had said, you know what? We're just too different. We need to be able to do things our own way. Maybe it would be better if we just split up and started our own churches. That way, we can take care of our own. How do you think that the work of the apostles would have been impacted had the members decided to split up? It certainly could have gone that way, but it didn't. The people in the, this story decided to move forward, so they did what the apostles asked them to do. They looked for seven men who fit the criteria that we just read about. First, they looked for men of good repute. They needed these men to be full of integrity. We assume that the men would be handling a significant amount of money, and they would certainly re be responsible for the care of a large group of people. So they needed them to be men who would carry out these tasks with honor and be above reproach. Men who had earned the respect and the trust of the group. Second, they looked for men who were full of the Spirit and of, and of wisdom. They were to be full of the Holy Spirit. The daily distribution was not just a food program. This was a program that was tasked with caring for the members. For seeing not just to their physical needs, but for making sure that they were truly cared for in whatever their need was. Like we mentioned before, if the widow's physical needs were not being cared for, then it's possible that their spiritual needs were not being cared for that well either. The apostles wanted to make sure that these men were full of the Holy Spirit so that they would be able to care for whatever need there was. And third, they made sure that the men were full of wisdom. From now on, these men would be in charge of making sure that there was no need for grumbling. And if the grumbling started, that they were wise enough to handle the situation. Churches are made up of people, and people are not perfect. There are going to be other times when they encounter difficulties, but hopefully, with these men in place, the difficulties will not become so big. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte of Antioch. If we're not careful, we'll fly right over this part because be honest here, you always fly over lists of names. I always fly over lists of names. 
But if we fly over the list of names here, we miss a really amazing point about the choice of the seven men. According to scholars, six out of the seven men who were chosen by the full number had Greek names. They were Hellenists. And the seventh, we don't have to wonder about him because Luke tells us that he was Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, so he wasn't a Hebrew either. Think about that. The apostles told the entire group that they needed to choose seven good men, men that possessed the three traits that we just talked about. It would have been easy for the Hebrews, who were likely already in leadership roles and who had been there longer, probably, to choose people from their own community, men that they knew well. The congregation could have easily voted in a token Greek and called it good. But they didn't. They didn't just vote in a token outsider to appease the grumblers. Instead, they voted in an entire group that the Hebrews would have considered to be outsiders. I find this to be rather amazing, frankly. It's not human nature to give up influence or control. We like things the way we like them. We like it when it's done our way. But it appears that the Hebrews acknowledged that there was a problem. They apparently did not get defensive. They didn't argue that they were doing the best they could and people just needed to deal with it. Luke did not tell us that the Hebrews got offended. Maybe the Hebrews realized that the way that they had been doing it wasn't working. It takes a tremendous amount of insight and humility to say, hey, you're right. We screwed this up. And we're willing to make a really big change to see that it gets better. So I wonder how they did it. Where did all of that grace come from? I'd like to think that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost changed the hearts and mind of the early church in such a way that they had a new perspective. It removed any ego from the equation. The Hebrews were willing to admit that there was a problem and they were willing to allow an entirely new group to be the solution. When was the last time that we did the same? I wonder when the last time was that I was able to set aside my ego and admit that maybe my way wasn't working out so well. When was the last time that I was willing to see that my shortcomings could be a Holy Spirit-led opportunity for change? These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In front of the full number, the apostles signified that they were passing along an important work to these seven men. They placed a tremendous amount of responsibility on the shoulders of these men but they, those men knew that they not only had the support of the apostles, they had the support of the full number of believers. Verse 5 assured us that what they said pleased the whole gathering. Luke wants us to know that these imperfect people were able to put aside their differences, step away from their egos, refrain from petty arguments, and find common ground in seven men that they could all have confidence in. And it worked. 
The apostles were able to devote their energy to prayer and ministry of the word, like it says in the verses, and the numbers of believers multiplied greatly. I mean, look at us now. Look at the number of believers of Christ that have come before us and hopefully will come after us because the early church was able, just this one time, to put their differences aside, to stick together, and to fix a problem in a way that they could all agree on. How could I have missed this story this entire time? How come this one's not in the kids' Bible story books? I'd like to tell you that they all lived happily ever after, at least for a while. Isn't that how all good stories end? Unfortunately, Luke does not give us much of a follow-up on how the widows fared. But he did tell us that the believers multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. That quote that I gave you earlier about not joining a church because it will be ruined, I disagree. Churches are not buildings. They are people. And people are not perfect. But it's the people who can take the lessons from this lesser known story and live love the way that Jesus taught. <laughs>